This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. The way I really understand whether or not I'm following Jesus in a particular situation is when I look around at the power dynamics going on in a room that I'm participating in and whether I myself am trying to establish power and hold power, even if it's just who gets to talk in a conversation or who prays the last thing in a little prayer meeting or who interrupts who. Those tiny little things that aren't life and death, they're not me giving up my life for another person. But I've had to come face to face, especially as a white, middle-class, college-educated man working in a church, that most of my entire life I have been habituated to having power. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're uh, we're picking up this week. We missed we missed last week. We've been pretty sick. Kids have been sick. Uh, wives have not been sick, which um, they kind of they kind of lucked out there. But and we're still kind of sick. So if you hear coughing and sniffling and stuff like that, uh, well, we're sorry. And uh, yeah, we're gonna do our best. We're gonna keep going this week on this theme of the Bible is a story about power. And we've been kind of tracing that there's these two ideas held in tension, that power is a positive and power is a negative, that uh, you have to see that power is going to need to be used to bless the nations, but that power can also destroy you. And is there anyone that's ever held these two in tension? That was sort of my question when we ended last week. Can anyone actually do this? Can anyone actually hold these two intention. Um, and that's what we're going to dig into today. And I don't just want to dive into something that seems, um, doesn't seem like it really impacts us and affects us because we're just talking about theology here. So you, what you maybe now believe about the Bible is a story all about power. How has that actually changed like how you see the world and how you see people? Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, one way to answer that in a, in a negative way is that if I had to point to the single most important problem with evangelicalism, with our theology, with the culture, with all of that, it would hands down be that evangelical theology and an evangelical way of following Jesus has almost nothing to do with the entire biblical ethic of relinquishing power. And so we've gone all the way back to the beginning to show that this is so central, even though it's been omitted from from so much of evangelical teachings, that the idea that power is dangerous, but to some extent power will be necessary, and therefore what it means to be human is to develop the capacity to steward power well, that story begins in the first few pages of the Bible and it runs all the way through. And for those of us that read the Bible because we're into Jesus, we have to understand that that thread, those two ideas interwoven together, are what the story of Jesus is all about. There really just isn't much that I am more theologically convicted about and passionate about than this biblical theology of power and how lacking it is in evangelical church. I just feel like I see it all the time. I was even listening to another podcast, um, Pete Enns' podcast, which we actually had a listener say that they hadn't heard of Pete Enns before. 
and they checked them out. So I'm super happy that they're reading The Sin of Certainty now, which love that book. Anyways, Pete Enns is super cool. But on his show, he had um, Jen Hatmaker, who um, I think it was a couple years ago. She and her husband, pastors, they changed some of their views over a long period of kind of wrestling and thinking through um, issues, changed some of their views on human sexuality, and were just completely driven out of evangelical church world. And that seems like that story has happened so much. Those in power, whether it's oppressing ethnic minority voices or women's voices, or there's this other piece of people that you uh, feel like are outside the circle theologically, are not um, upholding your version of orthodoxy. And so that's what happened in this case. I just seem like I, it seems like I've seen that story so many times where the religious elite, the religious powerful just crucify another person. Um, it's sad. It's sad to me. So whether it's, uh, you know, Jen Hatmaker or just, there's so many other voices. Rob Bell um, is another one. He was, he was in a way one of the first to, <laughs> to run forward with some ideas that critically important to the church and was absolutely driven out of the circle and what's convenient about that for those that are drawing the lines of the circle is if someone's outside that circle you can just point to them and and try to save other people from that heresy and you don't actually have to internalize that critique yeah and part of what we talked about last week was that essentially the evangelical church because we have separated these two threads of caution and the necessity of power. And we've just held on to essentially a theology of power for the powerful that the people have actually been discipled in evangelicalism to blindly trust those in power. So lead pastors, denominational presidents, those with the microphone standing on a stage, and have been trained, indoctrinated, to distrust and silence critical voices, which is absolutely upside down for the kingdom of God. And if we're going to fix that, if we're going to make a change to where the church in America isn't the place where the worst cover-ups happen, where the most abuse is swept under the rug, or as we quoted last week from Rachel Denhollander, that the church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse. If that's going to change, then it's going to have to start by undoing our theology from the powerful for the powerful and replacing it with what is true through and through to the Bible, which is actually trying to build a theology for the powerless, which is most often at odds with the powerful, but flips the world upside down. I'm all about this. I'm really excited about this. My uh, my critical mind says, has it ever happened before that that group that is the minority group out of power, they've gotten that power, they've received that power, and over a long period of time, they didn't turn into the powerful again and then oppress other people? Like, who can be this person or these people that can have this power and not eventually just think all about themselves and oppress the people that are different than them.
All right, so Tim, let's uh, let's talk about power, and I kind of want to hear you weave these two themes that we see in the Bible. Yeah, so let's do a tiny bit of a recap. We talked about how there are these two threads that get introduced all the way back. Israel has this high calling that is given by God through Abraham in this promise that he will make them to be a great and powerful nation that through having great power will be able to help and bless the world. But right next to that promise is a simultaneous promise that that same people, that kingdom, will actually grow up through hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And so what we pointed out from the very get-go of Israel's identity before they even exist, this motif is laid out that it's actually through the experience of powerlessness that they will be able to become the kind of community that is able to handle great power. So you go forward in the story and this idea, this motif that Israel is supposed to become this kind of kingdom is the main backdrop really of the entire Old Testament story. The Old Testament really is a mosaic that takes different pieces of literature and letters and songs and poems and it pieces them together and it tells a story essentially of how this is going for Israel. And I think most Christians are probably pretty familiar with uh, the simple idea that that the story doesn't go well. Israel doesn't do a good job of fulfilling its role. And this is true, but I want to go a bit deeper than that. And basically, there, there are multiple ways that the story acknowledges that, that Israel's failing in large part because it is looking at power, and especially political power and religious power, in the same way that the world is looking at power, the same way that the empires around them are. And so what appears to be the high point in Israel's history under King David and Solomon, they basically finally become a true kingdom. And yet the whole thing falls apart almost immediately because what Solomon does is essentially a rampant abuse of his power. He enslaves his own people. He models the kingdom of Israel after what Pharaoh was doing in the kingdom of Egypt. He models his leadership after all the other empires of the world. And so what happens is the thing falls apart. In this story of Israel wanting to achieve power, but not going about it in the way of relinquishing coercive power over others, leads to the ultimate low point of the biblical story which is the Jewish exile to Babylon. And so that's going to be the first theme we touch on, is this idea of exile. And specifically what we're going to see is the way that the kingdom, as was essentially exemplified under David, runs parallel to this side of the coin, which is that Israel is supposed to have power so that they can use it for good. But then the other part is that the flip side of the coin, which is Israel is supposed to avoid the dangers of power, the corruption of power, actually becomes attached to this idea of Israel being exiled, no longer being a kingdom, being deported and living as powerless refugees within another kingdom that is not their own, losing their home, losing basically every bit of authority they had. That this actually becomes attached to not only the way they were supposed to avoid using power, but you actually have some of the prophets saying things that sound like, the exile is not only just God's punishment on Israel, it's actually what he is going to use to prepare them to become that kingdom they were supposed to be in the first place. And this is a, a, an idea that we're going to draw out 
in, in fuller extent, and we'll get into the idea of messianism and where that develops. But starting here in the exile, the way the exile changes everything for Jews and especially the biblical authors to, to literally, it forces them to rethink all of their theological ideas, is that they start to put an ordering involved. There starts to be a, an A and then B to this two-threaded monster about power. And it isn't gain power and then avoid the danger. It's actually become powerless and then gain the capacity to hold power. And the exile actually begins to be viewed in large part as a mode of training Israel through the really harsh circumstances of utter powerlessness to stop embracing the world's way of imperial power and actually develop the capacity to be the kind of kingdom that if they had power, they would only help the world with it. So in short, what this idea is called, and, and this idea can be really wrongly used, but it, it's redemptive suffering. And so what is introduced here is the idea, not that God wants people to suffer, not that all suffering is good, not that um, if you're suffering, it's because God did it to you uh, to enact something uh, you know, in your life. It's none of those characters, but there is this idea that is that it can be through suffering that people actually participate in the kind of transformation that is needed, especially when the problem is one's addiction to power, then the loss of power actually ends up being one of the only possible remedies and healing agents to heal that addiction. Does that make sense? Yes. But I just want to clarify, this is still a plan B. There was still another way to do this besides them having to go into captivity, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but what you have is the biblical writers, um, when you look at the Pentateuch and all the way through the prophets, is you have warnings that this is likely going to happen all the way back to the time of Moses. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And when these books are written, all that's another debate. Uh, this could largely be written post, post-exile. But what you have is warnings all the way back into the Pentateuch that Moses essentially says he doesn't think this is going to work. He doesn't believe his people are actually going to be successful and they're, and they're likely going to go into exile. So it is, it is an avoidable event. It's by no means like, you know, God created the world and created the exile. That's, that's not the idea at all. You're right. It is definitely a, a plan B or a uh, accommodation of or something. Um, it's a it's a reaction to Israel's idolatry and uh, and refusal to repent. But I think what the point is is that coming out of that after this this catastrophe hits Israel, so you get for example Ezekiel, who's a refugee of the exile, and whoever wrote the later chapters of the book of Isaiah starting to think about the exile not in a positive wishy-washy way that's not it at all they're suffering tremendously but they're thinking about it as is it possible they're asking the question is it possible that after we failed for so long to accomplish our vocational task of blessing the world is it possible that actually our suffering at the hands of the world will be what equips us and allows us to actually enact that blessing. Could it possibly be that our experience of 
powerlessness will actually be what gains in us the capacity to hold great power. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Okay, so basically they may not have needed to go this path. There potentially could have been another way to learn how to hold power or to just do it well the first time. But what you're saying is the prophets are essentially looking at the exile and what happened there and saying, this is maybe a way for the Israelite people to actually learn how to use power well, coming from an angle of not being in power and actually having power used against you. So it's a little bit of a tritely spoken a learning experience for them. Yeah, I think that's right. So this this first theme is this idea of redemptive suffering, which I'm saying is a theological idea that is born out of the experience of Israel going into exile at the hands of their own God. That produces this really central idea that that their powerlessness might do something positive for them. The second theme that is integrally connected and and carries the this story about power forward is uh it's less of a, a theme and more of a kind of a way of thinking which is this idea of messianism or a, a messiah figure and messianism in the old testament is massive and complex and uh there's there's so much there to talk about but one way of simplifying it is that the idea of a messiah figure was essentially a way of taking the vocation and responsibility and calling of the entire corporate community, the people as a whole, placing that all on one representative individual. And it stems from this story that the Old Testament is telling, which is that the, the people aren't succeeding. The people as a whole are not doing well, nor are most of their leaders. And... So essentially their hope gets boiled down. And I think there's a there's a psychological piece of this that we can all relate to, which is, you know, putting your hope in if at least one person could do a decent job, if at least one person could be nice to you this week, you know, uh, it's sort of like a reduction. Like, you know, that you've admitted finally, like the world's not going to be what it's supposed to be. But could there at least be one decent person out there? So this idea that there would be kind of all the hope would be laid on one person and that this person would represent the whole and that this person would do what inevitably we want everyone doing, but we, we really just stopped believing that everyone would actually do it. Uh, that's not a specifically Jewish or Christian idea. That's something I think we can, you know, that, that element of messianism is something we can relate to uh, pretty much across the board. But if you think about 
our American way and and where that kind of placing your hope on an individual plays out in American society, what it really reveals is something that's been true throughout most cultures and most history is that what we always want that one representative figure to be is the most powerful figure possible. So there's been all sorts of people who have wrote about why Trump was elected specifically by the evangelical right. And a lot of it is has stated that essentially, uh, in the words of many evangelicals, Trump was a, a kind of messiah figure, a kind of savior who would save the United States from what people deemed was its woes. And the reason he was chosen was he was perceived as being such a big, brash, powerful bully that he could kick around all the bad guys, all the lefties that had been ruining the government, you know, all that sort of thing. And it, and essentially, Trump is, is probably a pretty good picture, a pretty good symbol of what it looks like when a people chooses nothing but power to be its sole representative. Honestly, similar to Solomon. Solomon was one who did power really well, and it didn't go well. It, it backfired on the people who who wanted the king in the first place. And, and when, so, you're, when you're saying power, you're saying, uh, you're defining that as coercive power in that sense. When you just talked about Solomon and you talked about Trump. Yeah, yeah. I think at least, at least in this example, you know, when I'm talking about Trump, Trump's version of power is grabbing his microphone, grabbing Twitter, and belittling other people so that he looks bigger than them. That's that's basically a, a playground version of coercive power. It's bullying. That's that's what it is. And it's one of the oldest forms of power and use of power in the books. Most people grow tired of it by the time they're eight or nine. Uh, but it's it's stuck around throughout all of human history. That's not the only kind of power. There are other more devious uses of power in a negative way, and there are other positive uses of power. For instance, good leaders can use their leadership power to act on behalf of other people and do good things. They can hold people accountable, all that sort of thing. Um, but the, the main piece I'm trying to point out is that most people throughout human history, including the Jews, when they thought about one person who could represent them, who could do what they were meant to to do, they were largely thinking about doing the power thing. Most of them were not thinking about avoiding the dangers of power, avoiding the corruption of power. They were, they were largely wanting a kind of uh, powerful figure who would use his authority to, to bring them out of trouble, which is an, it's an understandable uh, sentiment. But much of what the prophets are doing, which is so, to me, brilliant and ingenious and subversive, is they start combining this, this theme of redemptive suffering and exile as potentially a positive, and this idea of a, of a messianic representative, and they begin to compile those together to actually do this crazy thing of starting to look forward to someone who's not the big, bad, powerful bully, but who's actually the perfect exilee, the perfect innocent sufferer who doesn't conquer battles on behalf of the people and storm the castle on behalf of the people, but actually does the powerless suffering thing on behalf of the people. And so right there, I just want to pause this because immediately uh, that brings most of us into this. When we think of redemptive suffering and we start to think of that as messianism, all we go to is this idea of penal substitutionary atonement and 
and Jesus gets punished on behalf of the people's guilt, and therefore that is what what helps the people. And actually, we're going to transition from this series on power to doing another series on atonement. And what we'll show is that evangelical views of atonement, especially the evangelical insistence that atonement is penal substitution, is God punishing Jesus, that that actually has been one of the key tools that the evangelical institution has used to enact its own power. That ironically, there's been this this mistreatment of what Jesus did in his powerlessness that has actually been one of the greatest tools to give religious leaders the power over others that they are trying to preserve. We'll get into that later. It's a it's a big topic. We're going to have a fun guest on the show. For now, I just that's not that's not necessarily what we're talking about. What we're talking about is single representation of the people, and this idea of redemptive suffering, really through the lens of powerlessness, that through proving yourself the one who is willing to forego any temptation to power, that you prove yourself also therefore the one finally ready and therefore deserving of being handed the power that Israel was supposed to be given all along. Yeah. All right. So I'm super interested to jump into this. You keep mentioning messiahs and uh, isn't there only one messiah? Yes. So there's this, (laughs) this really interesting thing that in Jewish tradition, meaning uh, the ways many of the rabbis were reading the Hebrew Bible, they're actually from careful reading, there actually developed the tradition that there was not one Messiah figure, but two Messiah figures. Whoa, whoa, you ever whoa, whoa, heard whoa. anything like that? Yeah, but I mean, that's this is starting to sound like what you guys are saying. There's two Messiahs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're feeling scared, just hold on. It's it's not a big deal, but it, it's actually fascinating, mind blowing. It's a it's a really big deal um, in some really key ways. It it's not going to knock us off any sort of rocker. But so here's the idea. So the Messiah that, that we typically talk about when we talk about Jesus as being this representative of Israel is what's referred to as Messiah Ben David. Ben in Hebrew just means son of. So Messiah, son of David. And in one sense, that means he's the Messiah that came from the Davidic line, the line from Judah, all the way back when a, Judah was one of the the 12 tribes of Israel who was dubbed the the kingly line. So all the kings are supposed to come from that line. Okay, so on one hand, the Messiah is a king. He's supposed to come from, basically be of the bloodline of David. But on the other hand, the idea of Messiah ben David means not literal son, but kind of in the spirit of. Uh, So he would be a Messiah in the spirit of David, who was by and large the most successful king who... The scriptures go out of their way to, uh, even though he had massive failures, they do not paint him as anything like morally perfect, but he was loved by the people and he was faithful, largely faithful to to God, at least more so than most, most of the other kings. He's not a superhero. That's not the point. We don't need to like whitewash his flaws. The point is he creates a type, a kind of symbolic figure that this Messiah is going to come be a good, just king who will not abuse the poor and powerless within his society like Solomon did, but who will actually enact justice on behalf of of the people. 
So that's what we usually talk about. But there's this really fascinating thing is that there's this second idea of a Messiah ben Joseph, meaning Messiah, son of Joseph from the line of Joseph and a Messiah in the spirit of Joseph. Now, think back. Do you remember who who Joseph was? Yeah. So sold into slavery by his brothers and almost like killed by them um and then through through that ended up becoming kind of a ruler um and then helping his brothers and his people um through like the authority and the leadership that he had or the power that he had there yeah totally so just so he was one of the 12 tribes of israel he's one judah's little brother uh and there's that weird story where he basically has these dreams that he's going to rule over them. And then they get jealous that their little brother's going to rule them. And so they, they essentially start to try to kill him. But then one brother decides he's not going to kill them. He's not going to kill Joseph. And instead they sell him into slavery. But he literally, before he gets sold into slavery, gets put in a, in a well under, underground. So just think of all the like, especially for those of us that think of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Think of all those parallels there, especially with this two-sided coin or these two threads that are woven together of having power and powerlessness. Think think of all the ways that that story connects. What we just talked about was the idea of exile creating this secondary idea of there potentially being redemptive suffering, specifically redemptive exile, and that there's a kind of A then B ordering that starts to be developed that through the process of this willful exile is, is what will lead to the exaltation, to the power piece, to the other side of the coin later on. So then look at the story of Joseph. What happens? He literally gets exiled by his own family, betrayed, almost killed, sent into exile as a slave, essentially manipulated, abused. And that Exile is actually the means which brings about Joseph as the number two source of power in the entire Egyptian empire. And that power becomes the means which saves his entire family and the entire future people of Israel. So he, he's, a, he's a kid with a shiny coat, okay? Whatever this like colorful coat thing is that Joseph had. He's a kid. He gets betrayed and exiled and suffers. But that that exile leads him to a place of power. And when he's in that place of power, he saves his people. If you can imagine, you yourself have just experienced exile, the Babylonian exile, the the big bad Jewish exile. And then you go rereading the story of what happened to Joseph. There was the, the center point to why the Israelites ever ended up in Egypt in the first place and why there was an exodus and a redemption that ever happened to Israel in the first place, there, all these light bulbs would be going off in their head of like, oh, if Joseph could be betrayed and exiled and what came about at the end of that long journey was his exaltation and the the liberation and redemption of his the the saving, the rescue of his people. You can imagine how that would be a, a really important motif or theme that they could hold on to as a kind of hope that there might be some longer journey 
that they were all on in this exile that would be leading somewhere better than just the the bottom of the road. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. So not that there's two messiahs, but that there's two different themes of what the messiah could potentially be. One is in the spirit of David and one is in the spirit of Joseph. And you're saying that the Israelites would have been potentially looking for both of these in the Messiah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. Um, so first of all, we don't have time to get, there's all sorts of, uh, of biblical work that's done to draw out this uh, Messiah Ben Joseph idea. Uh, if we had more time for a, a nerdier podcast, I'd get into it. But there's a good book that came out recently uh, by a guy named David Mitchell called Messiah Ben Joseph. So if you're interested in this, go read it. It's fascinating. But yeah, I think you're right, Nate. The, the New Testament does not depict Jesus as like, fulfilling two split vocations, right? It's not like, hey, there was supposed to be guy A and and a separate guy B. It's not that clearly delineated. I, I think you could do that, and you could just say that Jesus fulfilled both roles in one person. I think there's probably a merging that happens, but it's not a full a full 100% conglomeration. There's still a distinction. Like we said, there are two pieces of thread woven together to make one string. Or there's a coin that has two distinct sides to it. That's the, the, the analogies we keep using. And the point we've been making is all the way back from Genesis in the early chapters that are depicting the fall, what's wrong with the world. It's trying to say there are these two pieces that need to be held together. And now what I'm saying is even in the, the Jewish idea of a Messiah, you have this development of two distinct sides to this coin. One is the side of power and one is the side of powerlessness, redemptive suffering. And specifically, again, I'm reiterating, there's an A then B correlation. And this is what I think was so, so central. So when Jesus read his Bible and discovered what he was supposed to be doing by reading these prophetic passages and being an incredibly careful, wise Bible reader, He knew very clearly that what it meant was that his ultimate calling was to be exalted and receive ultimate power. But the way, the means that he would go about accomplishing that was to refuse to use power whatsoever. In other words, he was to live in his life as the Messiah Ben Joseph, who is the redemptive sufferer on behalf of his people. And through doing that is what would allow him or give him the right to be the exalted king who rules. So before you get to the end of Matthew and all authority given to me there, you have to have the temptation in the wilderness and actually like showing that you can hold this power at all. Yeah, totally. So we've talked about this, but I I think it's so central. So, Look at the the temptation that Jesus goes through in the wilderness. And even the, the way that we talk about that in most church world that I've been around, it strips it of, of any sense of this biblical motif about power. And it, I've heard things like it's about how to read and memorize Bible verses and yeah. like other wacky interpretations. But just look at what it is and, and look at when it happens. So Jesus essentially shows up on the scene and is anointed at his baptism as the one, the chosen one, okay? That means Messiah. He's, he's the one. And what's the first thing that he does? 
And the Bible says the Spirit led him to do this. Is he goes essentially on a kind of rite of passage for 40 days in the wilderness to intentionally experience this thing, whatever this is. I think a better word for it is a, is a trial than a temptation. He faces temptations, but the reason he goes into the wilderness is to experience a trial. It's a challenge. It's a miniature version of what he knows he needs to be ready to later experience in full, in its full dosage. And so look at what the the offerings by the Satan figure and the, the temptations are. They're all essentially giving him the opportunity to seize the power that is rightfully his before he's done the part that he knows he needs to do first. So you have this idea that Satan is the operative ruler on this world. And, and in large part, why Jesus is coming back is to undo that and assert himself as the true proper ruler. But you have this weird thing where Satan is the one offering the power. Do you remember what the three temptations are? Okay. Uh, throw yourself off the temple. Turn something into food or water. No, yeah, into, into food. Bread. Yeah, bread. And then I can't remember the other one. So, yeah, it's, it's food. Do something crazy, cool looking. And then it's literally you can have all the power of all the kingdoms in the world. So it's like two little mini, like, hey, you hungry? Like, you could get a snack. Like, hey, you could go, like, dazzle some people. And then, like, hey, do you want to be the king of the universe? Like, it's it's basically like the first two are sort of almost child's play compared to this next one. The irony, though, is that Jesus knows he's supposed to essentially take that power. It's his. The point of his life is to take that power to rule the world from Satan. But the point of going to the wilderness to experience this invitation is to make sure that he's capable of saying no to it. And it isn't until he realizes and proves to himself, and I would say proves to God the Father, that he's actually capable of saying no to all of that power, both the massive amount of power to rule the world and the smallest little bit of even making some food for himself when he's hungry. That it's only after he's proven that he's capable of saying no to all that power, to completely refuse and relinquish the power that is rightfully his, it's only then that he knows that he's ready to go face the ultimate test, which is in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, where he refuses even the power to speak up on his own behalf in front of Pilate. He refuses the power to take himself off the cross. He refuses the power to defend himself when people are hurling all these accusations at him. He then displays redemptive suffering on behalf of the whole people of Israel, the way that all of Israel was supposed to behave as they went through their horrendous, grotesque suffering is the way that finally one Israelite, Jesus, does behave, which is out of full love for others that creates in himself a willingness to use none of his power to protect himself. And it's only after all of that is done that, as you said, you get to Matthew, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's an A and then B. Yeah, that's making sense. I think the new information here is sort of this ordering and then also the in the spirit of Joseph that we talked about. Because I've always kind of thought that the Old Testament was supposed to show us that the Israelites couldn't do it, right? And then Jesus needed to do it for them. 
I guess where that always kind of left me a little bit frustrated was like, where we go with that is then, okay, so this is the whole point. Jesus can do it. We can't do it. So we just trust that he did it and he lived that way and he saved us from having to live that way. And if we can do a little bit, sure, obviously try, but you're never going to be able to hold power and, and do this thing well and actually bless other people fully at least because we're terrible sinful scum and jesus is the only one who could do it so how does this change that narrative i don't know if it's the common a common view but it seems like the view that i have sort of taught in the past and and heard a lot of other people teaching yeah good good question so again we're going to do a longer series be more in depth about atonement specifically how do we interpret the cross and uh, and we'll be offering a lot of critique to the way a lot of us in American evangelicalism have been taught we're supposed to interpret the cross. But the connection between this story about power and the way we think about atonement is that I've been making the case that there is this cohesive, important, central underlying theme to the entire Old Testament that is weaving together both that the whole story is about God needing a people to be able to handle power and that the story of humanity is largely about people abusing power and seeking power and hurting others in order to, to gain and keep power. And if we strip that theme away from our view of Jesus and the cross and atonement, then it very quickly ends up stripping any sort of Jesus as our model, Jesus as the perfectly fully human one, Jesus as the perfect representative Israelite. And and we miss the major ethical, natural consequence of proclaiming faith in the crucified Messiah. And that's what we're going to get to in the next part in this series, is that there is very clearly a New Testament ethic, and especially in the letters of Paul, that to be a follower of Jesus, to be a fully effective follower of Jesus, means to pick up our cross, so to speak, by enacting in all of the little areas of our life where we have power over another person, social power over another, not to abandon all power altogether, but to relinquish any power that is not for the good of that person, which means largely relinquishing any form of social coercive power over other people. That's what it meant for Paul, in large part, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. And that has had almost, I wouldn't say none, but that has had a very small role to play in the Christianity that I've, that I've grown up in for a long time. And the reality is, if you have this story in your mind as you're reading the Old Testament, and there, therefore when you look at Jesus and the cross and you try to make sense of it in light of the Old Testament, you simply can't get away from this glaring light, which is showing that Jesus lived the best human life that you can possibly live. And the reason that he was invited to glory was because of his willingness to forsake all that on behalf of others. And our invitation on Christ's behalf to participate in his glory is set side by side on one side of a coin with the invitation to participate in Christ's forsaking of that same glory. Meaning we're invited, yes, to be exalted alongside Christ and invited simultaneously to lay down our lives and our power for others alongside Christ. 
so you just said like laying down uh laying down our lives and picking up a cross but like i've always heard that like that you know sharing in the suffering of jesus or whatever that's like you know people are going to hate me because i'm a christian and so i'm sharing in his in his suffering um and that's the jesus that's just jesus style of life but it seems like it's connected to something much bigger and much more practical to actually like how we live our daily lives um and it's this idea of power yeah totally we we just can't say it enough times that all of that new testament ethical language about following jesus and picking up our crosses and participating in the sufferings of christ all of that is dealing with dynamics of power, about personal rights. Those are ethical calls to lay down our rights, our personal individual rights, on behalf of other people. That is what Jesus did. That is not just a God thing. That is not just an atonement thing. That is an example for us that Christians, those who proclaim faith in Christ, are proclaiming that as the best way to live. We are those who are supposedly proclaiming that we would prefer to live the Joseph life than the David life, that we would prefer to suffer, prefer martyrdom even, like most of the early church, and to prefer to relinquish our power over others, even if we don't see the benefit or the reward from that until beyond death in some future age. It's better to do that than to hold power coercively over other people, to hurt other people, to abuse other people. And... And that is where we'll get into this. I think because Jesus's example was so harsh and grotesque and monstrous, it was such an immense suffering and humiliation. And the early church faced equal awful torture and suffering and humiliation that when we read this call, this to pick up our own crosses, basically it feels so far off that we just spiritualize the whole dang thing. To me, especially in the last few years of my life, I've just looked around it. The way I really understand whether or not I'm following Jesus in a particular situation is when I look around at the power dynamics going on in a room that I'm participating in and whether I myself am trying to establish power and hold power, even if it's just who gets to talk in a conversation or who prays the last thing in a little prayer meeting or who interrupts who? Those tiny little things that aren't life and death, they're not me giving up my life for another person. But I've had to come face to face, especially with, as a white, middle-class, college-educated man working in a church, that most of my entire life I have been habituated to having power. And therefore, if in the small little temptation periods that I have, like Jesus's wilderness trial, which wasn't even small, if in a conversation with friends or uh, ways I interact with other people, if I can't embody wanting to lay down my power to give power away to other people in that conversation, then I'm saying I can't even follow Jesus when my little social ego is on the line. And the reality is, and we'll get into this next time, there is a way of seeing the Christian life, the life here and now, our sufferings here and now, whether great or small, as preparation to give us the capacity to lay down power ultimately. And in that motif, it's only when people are actually capable of laying down all power that we could ever be trusted with great power. And so one of my favorite thinkers, Dallas Willard, again, we'll get into this next time, actually had a view that the Christian life and even perhaps heaven itself was the experience of in all of these little minutiae that the Spirit is leading us as Christians 
to give away our power and enact these little small self-sacrifices on such a regular basis that it will produce in us, that it will cause us to become the kind of person who could actually lay down all power ultimately on behalf of others. In another great Dallas Willard line, if we don't want to become that, like if we don't actually want to become the kind of people that are really, really good at giving away power, if we just want to become the kind of people that have power, like we don't actually want to participate in the life of Jesus. We may want to reap the benefits of the life and death of Jesus, but we don't want to participate in it. Yeah, this is this is sound this is starting to sound like different and exciting and compelling and I'm yeah, I'm super stoked about about this story and where we're going now. Um, and we're going to start getting into this in the next few weeks and eventually as we move into talking about atonement and really looking at some different some different views than maybe what we're used to, um, especially in, in the West as far as what did the work of Jesus on the cross actually do and how can we think about that in some pretty exciting ways. Okay, guys. Thanks for hanging with us. Listen, so Nate and I, we started Almost Radical because... Both of us have experience and we feel a lot of empathy with those who have been hurt by the church, burned by the church, don't feel comfortable or safe in an evangelical world anymore. Um, And we want to be a space for those people. And also, we think that doing better theology than most of us were brought up in is actually one of the best ways forward to creating a better life, a better world. So if these conversations in any small part have, uh, have given you any comfort or hope, or even just something good to think about, then we'd love to hear from you. So if you can, jump on iTunes, leave us a review. Also, if you have any questions, thoughts, anything not sitting right, feel free to give us an email. It's contact at almostreticle.com. That's all. Peace. See ya. You should come to me energy. I don't even know her name A pretty mark upon her breast To signify her from the rest